Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. It takes a special kind of band to obscure their appearance, to hide themselves from the general public. But if you can do it right, then it moves from being a silly gimmick to an important piece of your identity, your image, and your brand. When KISS came along in the early 1970s with their Japanese kabuki-inspired makeup, it really wasn't all that far out. They came from New York, where there was a glitter scene that had lots of guys wearing makeup. KISS just took it to an extreme. The Demon, Star Child, Spaceman, Catman. And it worked. KISS sold 100 million albums. Now, there was that period after 1983 when they wiped off the grease paint and showed their faces to everyone, but... That's not what fans wanted to see, so they eventually had to bring it all back. A more contemporary example is Slipknot. Their masks have been an essential part of their identity since the band started up in 1995. It started with the clown wearing a clown mask for the band's first gig shortly before Halloween that year. The rest of the guys thought that was pretty dumb, at least at first, but then they all joined in. Fans now keep close tabs on each member's mask, parsing what each new iteration and they can change or be updated almost yearly, might mean. There are other mask-wearing bands, the Residents with their eyeball heads, any number of dark metal bands from Scandinavia like Ghost and Lord Eye, Pussy Riot, largely to keep their identity hidden from the authorities. And then there's Guar, who have taken it to a completely different level with their alien costumes. Oh, and Dead Mouse has had his big mouse head for years. There are tons of others, but I think you get the idea. This brings me to Daft Punk. From 1993 until their breakup in February 2021, they acted like robots with elaborate helmets that completely obscured their identity. We knew that they were French, and we knew their real names, but beyond that, they were a cool mystery that we all played along with. Now that they're done, though, it's time to dig through their history. What the hell was Daft Punk all about, and why did they matter so much? Here is their requiem. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross.
Daft Punk and Da Funk from their album called Homework, released in January 1997. They called it that because they recorded it at home, which makes sense. And that wasn't supposed to be an album. They'd put out a bunch of individual songs without any intention of collecting them together, but then it just kind of happened, and the record sold several million copies. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and with Daft Punk gone, apparently forever, it's a good time to look back on their 28-year career to determine why they were so important to music. And we're actually going to start before the beginning. At the core of everything are just two people. First, it's Guy Manuel Homan Cristo. There aren't many people in music with hyphenated first and last names. And then there's Thomas Bengalter. Let's take them separately. Guy Manuel, which is actually short for Guillaume Emmanuel, is from just west of Paris. His great-great-grandfather was a famous Portuguese military person, and he's the grandson of a famous Portuguese poet. He got his first instrument, a guitar, when he was 14. Thomas Bengalter is a year younger. He's from Paris proper. His father was a songwriter and record producer. He began playing piano at six, and his parents made sure that he practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. The two met in high school in 1987 and immediately bonded over music, recording some demos with a few other students. That led to the formation of a band called Darlin, which comes from a Beach Boys song they covered. Guy Manuel was on guitar and Thomas played bass. Now, let's be clear. This was a full-on rock band. And in 1992, they recorded a couple of songs for an indie label. This was their first original composition. It's called Cindy So Loud. Uh, yeah, that's the band that would become Daft Punk. Let's hear the other song they recorded back then. This is, um, well, it's supposed to be a cover of that Beach Boys song called Darlin'. Uh, not that you'd ever know it. More pre-Daft Punk music from Guy Manuel and Thomas from 1992, when they were in their rock band Darlin'. They recorded a total of four songs, played two gigs, and lasted all of six months. But when a review in a British music paper said that they played daft, punky trash, we're talking about Darlin' here, and that's a quote, Darlin' called it a day. They had a third member in the band, Laurent Bankowitz. He went to work with Phoenix, another French band that we'd hear from later. The whole Darlin' escapade soured Guy Manuel and Thomas on the whole rock and roll thing, even though this was 1992. They didn't think that rock had anywhere to go, even as grunge exploded and Manchester morphed into Britpop. They thought drum machines and synths and dance was where it was at. So, owing to that snarky review and melody maker, they started Daft Punk. Guy Manuel and Thomas started going to raves and other dance events. And it was at a rave at Euro Disney in Paris in 1993 that they ran into the co-founder of a label called Soma. A demo tape was handed over, and soon the first ever Daft Punk track was released. The song would later show up in their debut album in a pre-recorded form, but this is the original from 1994. It's called The New Wave. That track was enough to get Daft Punk some work in clubs. 
When they weren't doing that, they were in the studio as much as they could be. In 1995, they issued Da Funk, which we already heard, and it sold quite well and got them noticed. In fact, a bidding war broke out. After some negotiating, they ended up with Virgin Records in 1996. I should point out that Guy Emanuel and Thomas were appearing barefaced back then. They'd show up at a club, perform some of their own songs, and spin records from their personal collections. Everybody knew what they looked like. Well, some people. They sometimes wore black bags over their heads as a way to preserve some sort of anonymity. They also started showing up to interviews and promotional appearances with Halloween masks. But it would soon get much weirder. By the time the Homework album came out in January 1997, Daft Punk had a bunch of standalone singles and a serious following amongst the dance set. Homework was hyped up by the music press, and the album ended up charting in more than a dozen countries around the world. Dance charts mostly, but, you know, still. The only place where it was a genuine across-the-board hit was in France. Actually, Da Funk sold more as a single than Homework sold as an album. Still, though, yeah, a good start. The same thing happened with another single called Around the World. The goal here was to make a record like Chic, Nile Rodgers' band from the disco era. It's worth deconstructing this song. There are five instruments and a robotic voice saying Around the World. It's repeated 80 times in the short edited version and 144 times in the original. A scientific analysis of music declared this to be one of the most repetitive songs ever released. And that is its genius. If you want to lose yourself in music, repetition is the thing that will do it. Around the World, a single from the Daft Punk album Homework. Daft Punk started playing everywhere, taking their home studio with them wherever they went. And their performances were genius in their simplicity. A sequencer handled the drum machines and the bass lines, and then Guy Manuel and Thomas were free to lay all kinds of sounds and samples over top. That sounds simple, but you still have to A, know how to sync things up, and B, find the right sounds and samples. That's hard, but Daft Punk figured it out. In a moment, we'll move into 1998 with the second album, which marked a change in those sounds. This is a look back at the 28-year existence of Daft Punk and why they were considered to be one of the most influential bands in the world, even though they released a grand total of just four albums. Yeah, go back and count them. Four. After things settled down with the Homework album, Guy Manuel and Thomas started working on the second record in 1998 at Daft House, the studio they built in Thomas's bedroom in Paris. Their gear took up so much space that he had to move the bed somewhere else. And the album took a little longer than expected because along the way, their sound evolved. It became slicker, for one thing. And there was more than just a little techno pop in the mix, incorporating samples and certain themes from the late 70s and early 80s, which, of course, was the original techno pop era with bands like Depeche Mode and OMD and Thomas Dolby and Erasure and so many others. There was less Chicago-style house and more post-disco and R&B, they were also fascinated with this new toy called Auto-Tune. They dusted off a lot of vintage synthesizers, and there were more live instruments. As a consequence of all this, the songs had more structure. That's apparent in the first single, which had been sitting around since 1998, before it was resurrected and turned into this. One more time. 
One more time, the first single from the second Daft Punk album, which they called Discovery. And it's around this time that the robots appeared. The fiction was that at 9.09 a.m. on September 9th, 1999, they were working in their studio when their sampler exploded. They were horribly injured and mutilated and required extensive reconstructed surgery, which didn't quite take. And as a result, they were doomed to wear helmets for the rest of their existence. Actually, it was worse than that. After regaining consciousness after the surgery, something that required the helmets to be permanently installed, they realized that they had become robots. And, well, fine robots they would be. Yes, they'd lost all the memories of who they were as humans, but they did retain the ability to create music. Great story. This idea has several origins. If you go back to the 1974 Brian De Palma film, Phantom of the Paradise, one of the main characters is the horribly disfigured Winslow Leach. He hid his facial injuries by wearing a helmet. There was also a band from the early 70s called Space, and their thing was to wear helmets and spacesuits so they could remain anonymous. This idea of anonymity was very important. Guy Manuel and Thomas wanted to focus on making music and not have to worry about being public figures that could be photographed and recognized. The very first helmets featured wigs. Thomas's headgear had curly hair. Guy Manuel's had long, straight hair. But on the way to a magazine photo shoot in 2001, they decided that the robots would look better bald, so they ripped out the fake hair. And from there, the helmet designs not only became more ornate, but an essential part of their image. Music meets art meets the future meets, uh, whatever. And this led to a fascinating level of mystique that they were able to pull off for the rest of their career. Not an easy thing in the universe of the internet. Yes, the thing about the helmets was kind of goofy, but they also showed how dead serious Daft Punk was about their art. Let me quote Thomas from a Rolling Stone story. We're interested in the line between fiction and reality, creating those fictional personas that exist in real life, and a way to enfold Daft Punk's music within a tradition of flamboyant pop theatricality that includes Kraftwerk and Ziggy Stardust and Kiss. People thought the helmets were marketing or something, but for us, it was sci-fi glam. We're not performers. We're not models. It would not be enjoyable for humanity to see our features, but the robots are exciting to people. The helmet designs changed over the years. There were several different versions. Some reportedly had built-in air conditioning, which came in handy for playing hot live shows, and communication links so that Guy Manuel and Thomas could talk to each other and their crew. One set of helmets was made by the same special effects company that worked on one of the Spider-Man movies. Guy Manuel and Thomas loved this anonymity. They could walk in and out of shows right through the crowd without being noticed. The only downside, though, were imposters. One guy rang up a huge bar tab at a club in Ibiza after saying, I'm Thomas Bengalter. Cheeky bugger. This is another single from Discovery. It's called Digital Love and features a sample built from a song called I Love You More from American songwriter and producer George Duke. Digital Love from the Discovery album. Here's where we need to start talking about Daft Punk movies. In 2003, they released a dialogue-free, 65-minute animated sci-fi film called Interstellar 5555, 
The Story of the Secret Star System. This was done in collaboration with a legendary Japanese filmmaker named Kazushia Takanuchi. It's a very daft film. It tells the story of the abduction and rescue of an interstellar pop band and roughly follows the themes laid out on the album. We'll come back to movies in just a sec. The third Daft Punk record was released in March 2005 and came together after just six weeks of running and recording. They called it Human After All, and it was um, fine, according to most fans. Maybe a little derivative and repetitive, perhaps a little rushed. Still, fans seemed to like it, especially after the resulting tour, which involved the band performing in front of a giant pyramid gilded with LED lights. This tour, known as the Alive 2006-2007 tour, was a massive success, especially in North America. It brought European electronic music to a much wider audience and really helped kickstart the whole EDM thing on this side of the Atlantic. One of the singles from Human After All was Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. After the Alive tour, a live version was released as a single. That live work netted Daft Punk a couple of Grammy Awards in 2008, and they surprised everyone by actually showing up at the ceremony. They even performed with Kanye West. And believe it or not, 2008, this was the first time a Daft Punk performance was televised. Okay, back to movies. In 2006, they released Daft Punk's Electroma, another sci-fi thing involving two robots who want to become human. Very, uh... Pinocchio and Commander Data. In 2009, they were hired to compose material for the new Tron movie, and they even made a cameo appearance as DJs. So, yeah, they were busy. But what about another album? The Gap was almost eight years. We'll pick it up there in a second. Daft Punk went eight years between the release of Human After All and the next one, which would be called Random Access Memories. There was a change of record labels, and a whole bunch of people had to be corralled to help with this record. This time, Guy Manuel and Thomas decided that they wanted to work with as many humans as possible. The goal was to replicate the sort of thing they'd been doing, but with meat bags instead of machines. Giorgio Moroder, the pioneering synth dance guy, was brought in. So was Nile Rogers of Chic, and the producer of David Bowie's Let's Dance album. He was a personal hero of the guys. Julian Casablancas of The Strokes signed up. Pharrell Williams, songwriter Paul Williams, Canadian pianist Chili Gonzalez, Panda Bear from Animal Collective, jazz bassist Nathan East, house producer Todd Edwards, and a few more. When it came to inspiration, Daft Punk spent a lot of time listening to Fleetwood Mac, The Cars, Steely Dan, The Eagles, The Doobie Brothers, and Michael Jackson. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was studied a lot, too. Tons of material was recorded. In fact, too much. And for a few minutes, they entertained the idea of releasing everything as a four-disc box set. But then the call started, which brought everything down to about 74 minutes, a few seconds under the maximum capacity of a single compact disc. When it finally arrived on May 17, 2017, demand for new Daft Punk material was insane. If you weren't into the whole scene, you could have been forgiven for wondering why people were calling this the most anticipated album of the new century. For these people, it definitely was. Random Access Memories became the only number one Daft Punk album in North America. 
and the first single hit number one in 30 countries and became one of the biggest selling digital singles of all time. Oh, and the record won a ton of Grammy Awards in 2015. After the huge success of Get Lucky and Random Access Memories as a whole, Daft Punk worked on a variety of side projects, including helping out The Weeknd on the song Starboy, which also hit number one. There were some compilations, an installation in Hollywood featuring costumes, artwork, and memorabilia, an electronic art exhibition in Paris, some low-key collaborations with people like Kanye West and Pharrell Williams and Jay-Z. There was a documentary about the man in 2015, and, uh, well, that was about it. There was no new music forthcoming from Daft Punk. And suddenly... It was all over. It just apparently came to a crashing end. On February 22nd, 2021, a clip from the 2006 movie Electroma appeared on Daft Punk's YouTube channel. It ends with a shot of one robot exploding while the other walks away. Then a title card came up that read 1993-2021. The following day, a band spokesperson said, yes, Daft Punk had definitely broken up, but didn't give a reason. A few days later, Thomas Bengalter released a handwritten note quoting the lyrics from the song Touch, and it came with a clip to a Charlie Chaplin movie from 1936 called Modern Times. There's a shot where two characters walk away into the distance. There's no new real information here, but Daft Punk has always been artsy and mysterious and opaque. Will we ever see or hear anything more from them? Well, it's possible. They certainly left a lot of unreleased material behind. And even if they don't, Daft Punk has gone down in history as one of the most influential bands in the history of dance. You have to wonder if we'll ever see a band like Daft Punk again. The musical conditions have to be just right. You have to be in the correct place, the correct time. You have to have a unique way of looking at music. And then you need a carefully constructed image that will help you stand out from the crowd. That anonymity thing was intriguing, too. By not being recognizable as humans, Daft Punk could get away with things that no one else could. For example, they appeared in a commercial for The Gap at a time when few artists of their type and stature were doing such things. They promoted Ericsson phones, Adidas gear. There were Daft Punk Coca-Cola bottles sold under the name Daft Coke. They appeared in ads for Yves Saint Laurent, and they were part of a promotional campaign for a Formula One racing team. Maybe all that explains why they decided to retire. They must have made a ton of money, must have managed it well, and must have decided that it was time to pack it in after just four proper studio albums over 28 years. We should all get so lucky. Podcasts for this program can be found on all the usual platforms. Just download and go. They're all free. Music news, information, and recommendations are always available through my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. We can meet up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and I love getting email. Send me something through alan at alancross.ca. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. 
And I have two of the hosts of Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, 2 Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande, uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's, it's, it's been a crazy journey. And, um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that, uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So, uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into 
to make that product and and that that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line, right? I've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right. <laughs>